Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our minister to senior adults, Ted Eaton. It's good to be with you this morning. Since I semi-retired, I don't have many opportunities to preach that uh, our church does nursing home ministry and we have 11 different nursing homes that we minister to every week. And so I was used to preaching one, two, or three times a week in our nursing home ministry. But since I don't do that anymore, I have to take other occasions to find an opportunity to preach. And one of them is our senior adult trips. I just got back from Mount Rushmore and I had a captive audience of 49 on the bus. When you're going down the highway at 70 miles an hour, Uh, and you have the microphone, you have a captive audience, and in that captive audience, we went nine days through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a unique book in the Old Testament. Only in the New Testament can you get a better idea of the grace of God than you get in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah begins by saying, listen, O heavens, and hear, for the Lord speaks, the Son I have raised up and brought you, but you have revolted against me. As an ox knows its owner, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, a sinful nation weighed down with iniquity. He goes on in that first chapter to present the theme of the book of Isaiah. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. And then he finishes that with the proclamation of come. Now let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As Isaiah begins to set that theme, he says he desires, God desires, to wash and cleanse us from our sins. You see, the theme of the book of Isaiah is God's forgiveness and redemption. In the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah, we see that marvelous vision as the heavens are opened and Isaiah sees the very throne room of God. And he sees the seraphim as they're circling the throne there. And they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah sees himself. He falls on his face before God. And he says, woe is me, for I'm undone. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
And then God brings forgiveness to Isaiah. As the seraphim takes the tongues from the, the altar and, and takes a coal and purges the lips of Isaiah so that he might be able to serve God. Isaiah goes on to present God's plan of salvation and we have in the seventh chapter of Isaiah the beautiful picture of the coming of the Messiah when he says in verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah 17 asked the question, do you think you're unaccountable? And Isaiah presents the fact that we're accountable for our sins. The wages of sin is death, we're told in the New Testament. And Isaiah presents the case that we are accountable for our sins. And then in chapter 43, he says, yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, you have become weary of me. You have not brought me the sheep of the burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane or money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. The failure of God's people is to live like the redeemed of the Lord. Although God had promised to save his people, in no way did they deserve to be saved. God's salvation will be totally by his grace. He will rescue his people from the Babylonian captivity because he loves them. You see, Isaiah in his book levels some very serious charges against God's people. They are offering up empty prayers and empty worship. Apparently, many of the Jews were praying and they were worshiping, but they were not worshiping and praying as God had prescribed. They were not seeking him with pure and righteous hearts. When they prayed and they worshiped, they approached God with sin-stained hands and sin upon their lives. They did not even offer the occasional special offerings of the fragrant canes or incense, much less the sacrifices that were needed for forgiveness of sin. They were not obeying God's commandments, but rather they were living immoral and unrighteous lives. They were focused upon the things of this world and their heart was full of covetousness and selfishness and a pursuit of that kind of pleasure. As Isaiah had charged earlier, they were worshiping the Lord as hypocrites, just putting on a mask and not really paying attention to what they were doing. Obviously, the people had no sense of their sin, no awareness of having committed that kind of wickedness. Their hearts and consciousness were hardened against God. 
Note the strong charge God levels against them. They were burdening him with their sins. They were wearying him with their iniquities. They were breaking his holy commandments. Now as a result of Isaiah's terrible, uh, or Israel's terrible offenses against the Lord, they would expect God's judgment to come upon them. But instead, God's heart reaches out to them and appeals to them. He longs to blot out their transgressions. He longs to remember their sins no more against them. Clearly, this is a call for repentance and to seek forgiveness. There is no forgiveness apart from repentance. To stress the utter necessity of seeking God's forgiveness, the Lord summons the people as if they were in a trial to come and present their case before them. He calls upon them to review what they had done, to state their case of innocence. But before they can speak, God charges them with being just like their fathers, sinners. Now there's references either to Adam or to Abraham, the father of the Jews or the father of our, our race. But both Abraham and Adam had rebelled against God. And God says, we're just like them. We've rebelled against you. Due to their continued sin, the hand of God's judgment was certain to fall upon the Jews. Because their false worship and hypocrisy, their religious leaders were going to be disgraced. The people were going to be shamed and the nation would be destroyed. Now keep in mind that God's word was going to be fulfilled. The Babylonians were going to come and destroy the city of Jerusalem, including the temple. And the people would be scattered, the survivors throughout the Babylonian empire. But notice God's people are to be set free by returning to the Lord and renewing their hope in the promised land. Only a few of the Jews were true believers. The same would be said during the time of that Babylonian captivity. But God still loves his people. He reaches out to them with compassion. Through the prophet Isaiah, he issues a strong charge to his people to give them a wonderful promise. God's strong charge and promise to his people is threefold. First, they will remember that they are God's servants and therefore he will not forget them. Even when they are in captivity, even when they're suffering horribly, they are still his servants, his people, he has chosen them to be his witness upon this earth. And although they will forget and forsake him, he will never forget and forsake them. His offer of forgiveness will stand. Their sins will be blotted out as though washed away by the rain of a cloud or the moisture from the morning mist. But second, Isaiah says, to be forgiven of their sins, they must repent. 
They must turn away from their sins and turn back to God. Once they had repented, then the Lord would forgive them and redeem them. Redemption looks ahead to the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone paid the ransom to set the people free from the bondage of sin and death. And then the third thing that he promises is that the people will all join in creation and praising him. Redemption and forgiveness of sin are the greatest gifts, the gifts that arouse people everywhere to praise God's name. And even if the human beings praise the Lord, their praise would not be enough. So nature is summoned to burst forth in song of joy. And the heavens above and the earth beneath, including all of the mountains and the forests and the trees, will praise God for his redemption. Now, those words are as an introduction to the very theme of what Isaiah is speaking about. God's forgiveness and God's redemption. Our scripture passage today is in Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 25. And notice Isaiah is speaking for God here, and God is saying, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own name's sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. Your first forefather sinned, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Jacob to ban and Israel to relevant. And then in Isaiah 44, verses 21 and 22. Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I will wipe out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. What a beautiful thought and idea that God is going to bring forgiveness and redemption. But we need to understand that the forgiveness and the redemption of God is God's initiative. We did not do anything to bring about the forgiveness and the, uh, the pardon that God has for us. The pardon of our sin is a double necessity. It is a necessity for us because we are sinners. And the Bible makes it very plain because we're sinners that the wages of sin is death. There is no alternative to that. We have to pay the price of sins. But we remember it's also a necessity for God. God brings forgiveness in order that he might be able to have us in his presence. I told about the experience of Isaiah in chapter 6. Remember he saw the holiness of God and God high and lifted up there and he saw himself as a sinful man. 
a man that could not stand in the presence of God and he fell on his face before God. And God brought redemption by the seraphim taking the, the coal from the altar and purging his lips. We cannot stand in the presence of God without forgiveness and redemption. And notice, for God, sin had to be removed from us or we had to be removed from the presence of God. And outside the New Testament, there is no uh, one that states the grace of God more clearly than the prophet Isaiah. Notice what God said. I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. He goes on to say, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The ultimate ground for our pardon is God's initiative. In Romans 5, 8, it says that God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The reason for our forgiveness rests not in us, but it rests in God and God's love and care for us. But what are God's actions in forgiving you? Forgiveness rests with the initiative of God. We see that. We stand forgiven because he took the first step. He is sovereign in his initiative. I, even I, Notice that this is a threefold repetition of God's name and it points to his, his uh, uh, lordly, kingly decision. He is the one that had made this decision. God did not have to forgive us of our sins. In his majesty, he chose to do so. My pardon rests on a decision in him and not in me. We need to understand we have nothing that we can present to God. In the book of Romans, it says that our righteousness, as best as we can be, is as filthy rags. And that we're sinners in the presence of God. My pardon rests on a decision of him and not me. He is unilateral in his decision. He decided to forgive when we were not even seeking forgiveness on our own. In its beginning, the decision to forgive is entirely one-sided. God's decision to forgive me is unmerited by me. His people refused to give him worship. His people had refused to give him prayer. His people had refused to, to give even the the supplemental kind of, of, of uh, sacrifices. And in spite of this kind of rebellion, God decides to forgive. Forgiveness rests in God's motivation. For my own sake, God says. God's motivation in forgiveness is entirely personal. It is first his own sake. The motive for forgiveness rests entirely in God himself. The movement of his love toward us began in him, not in us. In fact, the scripture tells us that before the foundations of the earth, God had planned 
our redemption and our forgiveness and our salvation. The sole motive for God's patience and endurance rests upon his respect for his own name. He will not let his name be defamed by the way that he treats his own people. What is God's method for forgiving you? Notice that God says that he forgives by removing. This removing is like the the eradication of something that is written. The dispersing of a cloud in the sky. God erases from his book the writing that is against us and God sweeps out of the sky the cloud that stands between him and us. It's very interesting when it says that God erases from his book. There are books in heaven. In fact, in Revelation 20, verse 12, it says that there are books in heaven and our sins are written in that book. This is certainly a record that that is recorded there. And the whole of God's word informs us that we will have to meet that record. It will be read in the presence of God and and perhaps in others also. And, And we are writing an autobiography in the presence of God right now. But how does God forgive? He promises to erase from his book. This is a very interesting passage because we understand that the books were written in that day and time in parchment. The inks that they had in that day and time did not have acid in them. And that you could reuse those parchments time and time again by taking a wet rag and wiping across that parchment and doing away with the writing upon that parchment. Can you just see God taking and and wiping from the pages of that book all of our sins, all of our transgressions? It says that he will remove from those books. We need to understand he promises to erase his book. He forgives. He removes the record. And in Christ Jesus, He canceled the writings in that book as he nailed those to the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the ledger is more than balanced, not by anything that we have done, but for everything that Christ has done when he died for us upon the cross. God sweeps away the cloud between us and us. In him. You see, Satan seduces us into sin. He convinces us that our sin can never be forgiven. They are so dense and so dark, he says, that they can never be caused to vanish. Yet God deals with our sin like the wind removing a cloud from the sky. Because of God's gracious act, our sins are like a temporary mist a vapor or a fog. The remains of our sins are transitory. They do not make an immovable object that God cannot move away. 
The heavy clouds in the morning look like forever, but the sun will burn them off before noon, and the Son of God will remove that cloud just as the sun in the morning removes the mist of that day. But there's more to forgiveness than God just blotting out of his book or removing that cloud. It says that God forgives by forgetting. He remembers our sins no more. When forgiven, your sins are no longer in the mind of God. They're rendered into oblivion. This means that God does not meditate on your sins. Now we brood over wrongdoings to us. We nurse them. And that indignation turns into fury, which becomes a desire that we might retaliate against that person. But God's not like that. He does not abrade us for our sins. He does not drag them up to remind them of us. No one can call them to his attention. Sometimes we forget a wrong that is, is done to us and then somebody will bring that up and that will revive that before us and, and we'll remember and we'll get angry all over again. A mere human may look at you in the eye and tell you that he forgives you. But in the eye there is a contradiction. God not only forgets, but God restores us to a place of honor. The prime example of that is Peter. Let's look at Peter. Peter was the, the spokesman for the disciples. Peter was always putting his foot in his mouth. One time Jesus had to tell Peter to get behind me, Satan, because Peter was going to try to stop him from going to Jerusalem to face the cross. At the time of the cross and the crucifixion, Peter was in the courtyard there, and three times Peter denied him. One time, Peter even cursed and says, I never knew him. But after the resurrection, Jesus gathered those disciples again and he spoke directly to Peter. And he asked Peter a question, Peter, do you love me? I'm sure that that broke Peter's heart. I'm sure that Peter hung his head and he says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Again, he asked Peter, do you love me? I'm sure that that second time that that question sunk even deeper into Peter's heart. And Peter says, yes, Lord. And Jesus says, feed my lamb. A third time, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? This time you can see the brokenness in Peter's heart. And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. 
You see, from that experience, we find that the denier of Christ became the preacher at Pentecost. And he was able to proclaim in a strong and a mighty voice that Christ had arisen and that they needed to come to him for salvation. And 3,000 souls were saved that day. You see, God not only forgives, but God honors and God uses his servants. How does God do this? He prayed the price for redemption. Our ransom, he paid that price. Notice he says, return to me, for I have ransomed you. It is not until Isaiah 53 that we truly understand the cost that God paid that we might have forgiveness, that we might have justice before him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was bruised for our transgressions. With his stripes we are healed. What Isaiah only saw dimly, we see totally in Calvary. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence today, we understand that we're a sinful people and that we have rebelled against you and we need your forgiveness. We need your redemption. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that nothing within ourselves is able to bring forth that forgiveness or redemption, but everything in you, that you loved us even while we were sinners and Christ died for us. Help us understand that and apply it to our lives today. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.